This is another iRaw podcast. We advocate animal welfare law as the right path or we advocate animal rights as the right path. And I, I, I find this dualism to be very unhelpful and also unrealistic. I think the more feasible and plausible way for the law to develop will be one that echoes the development of international humanitarian law and human rights. Okay, welcome back to The Animal Turn. Uh, let's get started with some housekeeping. Uh, unfortunately, in this episode, I did run into a few technical glitches and internet mishaps. Myself and uh, Saskia Stuckey, who's the guest for today, we did lose each other a couple of times. But overall, I think I've managed to edit these and mostly smooth out all of those sound problems. So to my still relatively green ears, it sounds good. And I hope it will sound uh, good to you too. Uh, I also just wanted to point out that I've recently found myself back on Twitter after a hiatus of years and years and that was of no real reason except that I think I got lazy but now I was recently tagged because of the animal turn uh, thank you Joe Wills and that got me excited about Twitter all over again so it's probably a relatively narcissistic thing that I find myself back there nonetheless I'm excited to be back on Twitter and if you're keen to connect with me there you're welcome to my handle is at Claudia F town t-o-w-n-e so in this episode i speak to saskia stuckey about the concept of animal warfare law as you will hear uh, it is a concept i took a bit of time to fully grasp but saskia does an incredible job of illustrating both the conceptual and the discursive overlaps between animal welfare law and international humanitarian law, which eventually leads her to making connections and drawing out this concept of animal warfare law. Saskia Suki is a senior research fellow at the Max Planck Institute for Comparative Public Law and International Law in Heidelberg, Germany. In 2018 and 2019, she was the visiting researcher at the Harvard Law School Animal Law and Policy Program, where she worked on her two-year postdoctoral research project called Trilogy on a Legal Theory of Animal Rights. This was funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation. She also obtained her PhD in Switzerland from the University of Basel, which culminated in a book called Fundamental Rights for Animals, which was published in 2016 and won four awards, uh, so an incredible piece of work. Her research interests include animal law and ethics, animal personhood and rights, legal animal studies, and comparative animal welfare law. Uh, she has delved into numerous legal components as well as philosophical components, and today, as you'll hear, we're going to speak a lot about international humanitarian law. So thank you so much for joining me today, uh, Saskia. Uh, I was very excited to read about some of your work. I recently did an episode with Charlotte Blattner about international law as well. So this is really, uh, and I think you've got quite different views or, or different takes on international law. So I'm very excited to hear about uh, your idea of international warfare law. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about yourself and the type of work you do with animals and law. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm very excited about this opportunity. Um, yeah, so I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Max Planck Institute for International Law in Heidelberg, Germany. And I've been working on animal law issues for the past 10 years now, uh, and I'm mainly interested in not kind of the doctrinal aspects of animal law, so that means kind of the, the, the laws that we have and, and how they protect animals, but more of a, I, I take more of a step back and I'm interested in, in analyzing the, the foundations and the, the, the conceptual foundations of, of, of how the law relates to animals and how the law should relate to animals. So, yeah, typically my approach is kind of a theoretical, um, mm. theoretical approach to animal law. So you're considering kind of the norms, the normative values of law? Um, I kind of, I, I consider the normative shortcomings of the law as it is. 
mm-hmm. which is kind of the basis for exploring different um, different concepts and different approaches to protecting animals under the law. So, for example, as many animal scholars have established, uh, the current animal welfare laws that we have are, are pretty fundamentally insufficient. They they barely protect animals in mm-hmm. ways that matter. And so that is a strong incentive to look for for the shortcoming or to analyze those shortcomings. Why why has the law been so um inefficient in 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 affecting any real change for animals in, in, in slaughterhouses and, and factory farms and research laboratories and and like mm. what other avenues can we can we explore to maybe improve the protection of animals and i think i found it particularly helpful in that regard to look beyond animal law to look into laws that are that already exist and established um, legal mechanisms mechanisms to protect humans for example so to kind of make use of of the concepts of human rights and of of children's rights and uh, the the protection of 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 humans with disabilities to use Mm -hmm. those established legal um instruments to uh, to also yeah protect animals do do you find that there's any difficulty with doing that Uh, so you know that in general you're perhaps looking at groups that are somewhat marginalized that have finally obtained some you know standing in the law or standing i don't know the correct words to use but that have you know received some attention from the law um and do you find that there's any resistance to using laws that have been applied to minority groups or to children or to people with disabilities and and using them in thinking about animals and that people are concerned that there's a conflation there yeah i mean i'm aware that um this whole this analog or this approach from mar- the argument from marginal cases as as it's typically called that it has um generated important criticisms and i think those criticisms need to be heard but i don't think uh that they necessarily exclude this way of approaching um, the protection of animals. So, for example, there there has been a lot of criticism raised against comparing animals to mentally, um, severely mentally disabled humans or to also the historical comparisons between slavery and animals, which I find very um, compelling on the one hand. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I, I wouldn't, in my research or in my work, I don't necessarily equate or conflate those two historical experiences. I think the more pertinent point is, regardless of whether these these beings or groups are comparable as such, the more important thing is how the law has treated them and how the law treats them now. So it's kind of more of a historical comparison and, and, a, and a historical learning curve or a kind of learning from the experiences and the lessons of, of, of slave law and, and disability law and, and women's rights law, etc., to try to take those lessons and, and utilize them for the animal cause. So is that, um, in coming back to your trajectory on how you came to animals in the law, was there a, a a personal situation or story that got you interested in law in general? Or did you always know that you wanted to look at animals and the law? Well, um, so my, I think like many, many animal rights um, advocates before me, I was kind of initially intrigued by, or, you know, compelled to, to pursue the animal rights cause by reading Peter Singer's work. So when mm-hmm. I was 15 in, in, in my high school, in my bioethics class, we, we, we read Practical Ethics from Peter Singer. And yeah, for me, that was an eye opener because like in very easy, in a very easily accessible language, he kind of makes his main point of, 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 of speciesism and, and kind of why 
comparable humans and animals are treated fundamentally different and how that's wrong. So that was for me an eye opener as a as a young adult or, or as an adolescent. And coupled with uh, my love for my dog, our family dog, those were two strong incentives for me to ponder these questions, to kind of explore the ethical um, implications of our treatment of animals. And well, yeah, I, so that was always a personal interest. And mm-hmm. uh, I first started studying um, veterinary medicine because I wanted to help animals on the ground, basically. But I was very disillusioned with that uh, type of work because, yeah, I felt that um, veterinary medicine isn't really about helping animals, but it's, yeah, it's kind of an, I don't I, I didn't find it very satisfying. So I, I, I stopped that and I pursued my original passion for law, which I kind of had a passion for, for, I don't know, out of a justice cause. And only mm. late in my studies, in my legal studies, did I actually realize that I could kind of connect my interest in animal ethics and my my legal training, my legal skills. So yeah, I started to to research and explore uh, or connect the law and and animal ethics, which is yeah more than ten years ago now. <laughs> It's amazing how time time flies. So you were speaking now that your your interest to law and how you came to law was um, pertaining to justice. And you've also said now how looking at uh, other types of law help you in thinking through animal animal law. Is this an attempt to try and make animal law the same as the law that applies to these other groups? Or is it just a way of trying to think about how others have thought about the law if that makes sense yeah i think it's more the latter so it's i think looking at other areas of law is uh, just it can give very fruitful insights for animal law that doesn't mean that we uh have to translate um or that 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 it's the same law necessarily but just that we can learn from those laws um yeah i think Mm -hmm. Obviously, animals are very distinct. Their their historical experience of oppression and exploitation is very distinct from other um, groups' experiences. And I think every kind of historical wrong necessitates its own adapted and modified legal response. But it's unrealistic also and unnecessary to think that the law has to um, invent a new legal response every time mm. it is confronted with a historical injustice. So I think it it's, it, it it makes sense, and it's also kind of natural to to further develop the legal instruments that we already have, that we have already furnished as an answer to historical wrongs, and to yeah further develop those with regard to anim- with, with regard to animals. So the the one that you're looking at in particular, if we if we start moving now um, towards the focus of this episode, you are looking increasingly at international humanitarian law as a way in which to understand animals and the law. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit about what what is international humanitarian law? Yeah. Okay. So international humanitarian law is the branch of international law that deals with war or more specifically with warfare so it it is specifically that part of the law that regulates what can be done in wars and and armed conflict so it at first glance it seems entirely uh unrelated to animal welfare law and Mm -hmm. it's only upon closer look that uh, very strong parallels and 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 surprising similarities open up between international humanitarian law and animal welfare law. Could you could you give us an example of 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 those overlaps? Yeah, I mean, there is like there is. I could talk for two hours about this. There is many. <laughs> I, I can maybe quickly point out what made me first think of this comparison or this analogy because it. Yeah, to my knowledge, this hasn't been um, explored before. The the kind of the mm-hmm. analogy between 
the law of war and animal welfare law that this connection hasn't been made before. And I only stumbled across it by coincidence, basically. So I, I read a paper on international humanitarian law and I, I was struck by this uh, paragraph. Um, I don't know, can I quickly read a quote from this paragraph? Sure, uh, go ahead. Yeah, okay. So there, it's, a, it's a paper by a very renowned um, international legal scholar who is very well known for his work on international humanitarian law. His name is Theodore Meron. And in this paper, he says, and I quote now, to speak of the humanization of the law of war is in many ways a contradiction in terms. Consider, for example, the law of war term unnecessary suffering. To, genu to, to genuinely humanize humanitarian law, it would be necessary to put an end to all kinds of armed conflict. Um, uh -huh. So th I, this struck me because I, like having been, having been working on animal welfare law issues for years, when I read this, I was like, oh, my God, this is exactly the same. The, we have exactly the same problem in animal welfare law. It's, uh, mm -hmm. We speak of humane treatment of animals. We speak of humanizing the use and the slaughter of animals. And that is in and of itself a contradiction in terms. Um, what, what is also yeah, stunning is that both international humanitarian law and animal welfare law use the same principle of unnecessary suffering. So... This principle of unnecessary suffering is is a is a, a crucial fundamental principle in international humanitarian law, as it is also in animal welfare law. And so, yeah, so this was for me the beginning to yeah start to explore these parallels. And I don't know, I, you ask what are some of the main um, similarities? I can hmm. name these uh, in a quick manner. So the first is both areas of law deal with or govern uh, like an, an inherently violent and inhumane institution. So on the one hand, war and other armed conflict, and on the other hand, animal exploitation. Um, in terms of their historical formation, both these laws, so both international humanitarian law and animal welfare law, have emerged as an answer to these, to these pre-existing institutions. So these institutions mm -hmm. of war and animal exploitation exist and they, they, they emanate massive violence and the law reacts to that by, by forming a body of law that tries to restrain and somewhat humanize and moderate this vi violence that is inherent to the institution. And does it, sorry, yeah. when it, does it, when you create a law in response to something that already exists, does it, does it restrain the practices or does it just normalize the practices and well, create a space that's a which... very good point <laughs> that's exactly the, the the ambivalence that marks both international humanitarian law and animal welfare law so in in responding to this pre-existing violence and trying to somewhat moderate and restrain it on the other hand at the same time it also yeah normalizes and legalizes it and and kind of so that's the dark side of humanization. So mm. on the one hand, the law wants to at least partially make the violence, uh, alleviate the violence, uh, prevent unnecessary suffering. But on the other hand, by doing so, it legitimizes and normalizes and reinforces all the violence that it deems necessary and, and legitimate. So, and, yeah, th th and that's also interesting because international humanitarian law and animal welfare law have attracted exactly the same kinds of criticism so that the critical discourse around these bodies of law is surprisingly similar like you can even do a discourse analysis basically and you find exactly the same phrasing of criticism in both discourses what's all around you almost everywhere you look and makes your life better birds Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it.
that's fascinating. I mean, even the the idea of unnecessary suffering. So we spoke a bit about this in the first episode with Will Kimlicker, but what constitutes as necessary? Uh, even the word suffering itself, to, to suffer, when is suffering necessary when created by another individual? Uh, how has is, how is humanitarian law dealt with that tension? When is, when is suffering necessary? Well, so international humanitarian law is, is marked by this dialectical tension between military necessity and, and the principle of humanity. So that's kind of the fundamental dynamic that shapes this body of law. The, the, it's always a compromise and a dialectical tension between military necessities and humanitarian considerations. And exactly the mm. same dialectical tension exists in animal welfare law between the necessities of animal use, on the one hand, and humane considerations. So this general tension kind of is embodied in the principle of unnecessary suffering. So the, the principle of unnecessary suffering um, kind of operationalizes this balance between necessity and humane considerations on a case-by-case -case basis. It requires mm -hmm. balancing the military needs or animal use needs on the one hand and the humane and humanitarian con considerations on the other hand. So in, in international humanitarian law, the kind of the, the, the International Court of Justice has defined unnecessary suffering as harm greater than that unavoidable to achieve legitimate military objectives. So it's wow. it's it's or or uh, harm that uselessly aggravates the suffering of combatants. <laughs> so that seems we, very broad. So, I mean, does it give any limitation to what the military objectives could be? So, you know, the extent to which a military objective is seemingly banal versus uh, like of extreme importance, does that come into play at all with the, like how, how are these things really measured or, or quantified? Can they be? Well, I mean, that's kind of the crucial question with all uh, legal balancing. Yeah, you need to. Mm -hmm. so, like, from the outset, these two values seem kind of incommensurable anyway. But mm -hmm. somehow you need to make them, you need to quantify them and weigh them. So military objectives, that can be anything. Yes, uh, that's uh, as long as, as it's... Uh, um, military objective basically means anything that is of military value. Um, and of course, if it's relatively trivial, a, a relatively trivial military benefit that that um, um, stands opposite of a of massive uh, human loss and, and or massive uh, infliction of suffering, the balance will probably be tipped more in favor of uh, of the humans. Uh, and, but the, the same is, is um, well, it, with animal welfare law, it's actually a bit more, the, it's even broader, this uh, idea of necessity, because here it's not just one legitimate purpose, like only mil military necessity. Uh, in the case of animals, it's uh, like a numerous animal use purposes that count as legitimate um, objectives to cause suffering. So this necessity test takes place in a much broader frame of reference in animal welfare law. So your one of your contributions or one of the things you're suggesting is the idea of animal warfare law. What is, if, if both of these, maybe you could tell us a bit about what that is, um, because if both of these suffer from these kind of ambiguities, what is it that animal welfare law could take from international humanitarian law? Yeah, okay, so... The concept of animal warfare law is kind of, yeah, okay. So given that animal welfare law shares some of the main hallmarks with the law of war, I think mm -hmm. it's best to think of animal welfare law as a kind of warfare law. So this term animal warfare law is, is meant to kind of indicate that animal welfare law is as much a welfare law as it's a warfare law. So to kind of put it in the vicinity of, an, of a warfare law, because typically in or in common parlance, we think of animal welfare law as like this humane 
uh, humane law that ensures that animals don't suffer. But in reality, animal welfare law is kind of regulates the worst kind of human activities towards animals. And it's it's a humane it, it, it's a myth that animal welfare law is just a purely humane law. So I think mm. rephr- reframing animal welfare law as a warfare law kind of sharpens um, and refines our understanding of of what exactly the nature and function of animal welfare law is. And it is a very ambivalent uh, body of law. Its function is not just to humanize, but also to facilitate uh, the exploitation of animals. And the so the main point of making this comparison with the warfare law is to illustrate that there is a very important gap existing in animal law. So... So is this a conceptual contribution then? The idea of animal warfare law is to just try and highlight the fact that, because welfare comes with a variety of, I think, positive connotations, but if it becomes animal warfare law, these kinds of ambivalences that you're talking about become more apparent, more pronounced. So is animal warfare law a a conceptual contribution to thinking about animals and law? Yes, but also a normative contribution. So the conceptual contribution is... Yeah, this reframing of animal welfare law as a warfare law just sharpens our analytical understanding of it. But then also, and this is crucial, the comparison with um, international humanitarian law points to a a normative vacuum. So um, international humanitarian law is from the outset designed as an exceptional wartime regime, right? So the, the, the international humanitarian law is embedded in international laws, understanding that peace and the law of peace is the norm and war Mm -hmm. and the law of war is the exception and by contrast existing animal protection law is constructed on 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 the implicit assumption that the war on animals as i call it or as dina shwadiwil has also um um, researched on so that this war on animals is the normal and ever-present condition so yeah as i put it in my article the, the any analogical distinction between a state of war and peace is unknown to animal law. Mm-hmm. For animals to speak with Orwell, war is peace. So because this animal warfare law is so easily mistaken for an ordinary peacetime law, we kind of neglect the fact that that there is something beyond this animal warfare law. Um, in the case of humanitarian law, international humanitarian law, there is you know human rights, which govern... Uh, human relations in peacetime, and there is the prohibition on the use of force in the UN Charter, which generally prohibits war. So war has actually been outlawed um, over the last decades in international law. So these two bodies of law, the, the, the prohibition on the use of force and human rights, they kind of counterbalance the permissive nature of international humanitarian law. So International humanitarian law is kind of kept or it has kind of checks, checks and balances, and it's an exceptional mm-hmm. regime, whereas animal welfare law is the only regime that governs the protection of animals. There is nothing else. So my normative mm-hmm. claim is that this animal warfare law needs to be complemented and contained by two other bodies of, of animal protective law, which would be kind of... Um, conceptualized in 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 uh, analogically to the to the prohibition on the use of force and human rights so it's framing it's also creating i guess a temporal component where you are saying that animals have been in a constant state of warfare or with humans and that there is actually no idea of peace beyond what the current status quo is um which is really quite a powerful idea, um, reframing and switching that. But perhaps could you maybe tell us uh, what does it mean to say that we are at war with animals? I think when you say war, I have a very maybe traditional idea in my mind of two armies facing off with one another, both equipped with, uh, you know, weapons fighting for some sort of cause. Um, What does it mean to say that we are at war with animals? Yeah, so I use this term war on animals in an analogical sense. So I I don't necessarily claim that 
the the institutionalized violence against animals that is uh, constitutive of our current um, exploitation of animals, I don't necessarily claim that that is factually the same or like war. Because yes, war traditionally means two armies or the state armed forces uh, fighting with each other using weapons, etc. And there is uh, there is a host of uh, pertinent differences between war and animal exploitation on, on this factual level, obviously. And I don't mean to uh, imply that war and animal exploitation are the same. The, mm-hmm. the, the reason why I use the war on animals is to kind of highlight linguistically that the normative regime that governs animal exploitation and the normative regime that governs war, that those are comparable and very similar. So, yeah, I, I kind of use the war on animals um, as a hur- heuristic device for re- referring to to the subject matter of animal welfare law in a manner that connotes the analogy with the law of war. And with uh, I haven't read a lot of Dinesh Wadiwal's work with the war on animals, but does he not also frame it in terms of there is actually a, a literal war going yeah. on in that there's a lot of violence being perpetuated um, and that if you start to consider animals as a population they might be on the losing side of the war but that there is resistance and um, so you're not using it in in the way he uses uh, no, with animals. no I, I I don't I don't I don't necessarily disagree with him but I also don't necessarily agree with his assessment so it's it's kind of besides the point for my analysis because my analysis okay. focuses on the on the legal level on on the normative level so it's not really relevant whether the factual phenomena of war and animal exploitation are similar or the same or comparable. The, the, the only thing that matters to my analysis is that the, the normative framework that governs these two phenomena is, is very similar. So are you simultaneously developing a, a, another concept for whatever this beyond animal warfare law would be? So if you're thinking of uh you know making it a more temporally relevant sorry i'm trying to think of the right word so if if we're trying to think of an end game or an, another type of law another type of thing outside of animal warfare law are you developing that concept as well i am so that's basically the second part of my of my inquiry so the first part is yeah to kind of establish animal welfare law as a warfare law and then based on that reframing i'm trying to create this new uh complementary animal law kind of the animal law of peace so concretely in concrete terms um my my normative proposal is to complement existing animal warfare law firstly with a kind of so youth contrabellum that's a terminus technicus so the in the law of war the the prohibition of war is called the use contrabellum, which means the law against war. So I'm trying to complement animal warfare law with a similar use contrabellum, which would translate to a general prohibition of um, institutionalized instrumental violence against animals. So ideally, that would mean a general prohibition of animal exploitation. But as is also true of war, just because war has been outlawed, that doesn't mean in reality that wars completely cease to exist. So realistically speaking, even if animal exploitation were to be generally prohibited, there will still be instances or or situations where violence, instrumental violence against animals will persist. Um, And... The second, so, oh yeah, go ahead. No, no, carry on. Sorry. So that's kind of the first, um, p- the second pillar of this animal protective law, and then the third pillar will be animal rights, uh, an animal rights regime kind of modeled in the image of human rights. So yeah, in the case of of uh, the human law of war, uh, human rights are kind of the core of a peacetime regime. So when 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 we don't when we're not in a state of war when we're in a state of peace human rights are at the core of governing 
the, the relation between the government and, and, and individuals. Um, mm -hmm. My claim is that the animal law of peace should, at its core, also provide for some fundamental animal rights. And would this only be, I mean, so this would be a law that's trying to think about the relationship between humans and a variety of, of animals. Um, would this then take into consideration all the different kinds of spaces and, and things and processes that we come into contact with animals? Or is it like a generalized universal set of laws and principles to try and guide more ethical uh, legal behavior? Yeah, I think uh, we, sh we can think of an animal rights peacetime regime along similar lines as we think about human rights. So human rights are inherently aspirational and, and mm -hmm. idealistic to some extent. They have been institutionalized and positivized in laws, but still they retain some degree of, of, of idealism and, and aspiration. And so th this is an important function that human rights have. They kind of, they shine uh, uh, normative ideals in the future and, and on, along which we can orient ourselves. And I think animal rights will have a similar crucial function. To some extent, they will be institutionalized and they can have real legal effects and consequences. For example, the right to life may over time um, operate as, as a, as a prohibi prohibition to eat animals or to kill animals for food. But mm -hmm. a, an additional dimension of, of an animal rights regime will be to, to give us normative guidance to kind of to, to enshrine this normative ideal of, of a justice-based, uh, non-violent and non-exploitative human-animal society. And how would this be different to existing animal welfare law? What is what is fundamentally different between looking at, at animal rights versus the existing welfare laws? Well, the idea of animal rights has historically emerged as a direct um, alternative or opposition to animal welfare law, right? So mm -hmm. because animal welfare laws are so compromising uh, in, and so insufficient in protecting animals from, from bodily harm and from death. The idea of animal rights has emerged to, to give them strong rights that, that pr protect their interests in life and, 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 and well-being and bodily integrity, maybe even dignity, uh, to an extent that kind of disallows harming them for trivial reasons. Mm -hmm. So the the idea the idea of animal rights is fundamentally incompatible incompatible with 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 using and exploiting and killing animals for for all those reasons that we do today. Um, this is kind of, animal rights in this in the narrow sense are typically understood as 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 um, abolitionist in the sense of being necessarily requiring the abolition of institutionalized animal exploitation. It doesn't necessarily mean that all kinds of human-animal relations will be abolished by that, but it means that violence-based and harmful use of animals must be abolished in order to respect fundamental animal rights. If we understand animal rights like in this sense, it, it's clear that they cannot be compatible with, with the war on animals. So animal rights are fundamentally hostile to this war on animals. So it, it's, it's a direct contrast to what animal welfare law does. Could you possibly give uh, an example of how you see, or, or using your framing of animal warfare law, could you maybe give me an example of, uh, you know, a practice or an industry or something where you could see this starting to shift the both the discourse and the concepts, but also, uh, as you said, the norms around the practice? Uh, I don't know if you've got any any examples that you could help illuminate this with to illuminate what exactly 
So just to 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 drive home your your concept of animal warfare law um, and and your subsequent um, you know peacetime law, do you have? Could you maybe use an example to try and um, explain them through? So uh, I don't know, like maybe uh, happy happy meat or or eggs or um, you know lab lab tested animals. Is there a way? Have you worked with any um, you know tangible examples, or is this? Uh, well, um, it's, it's difficult at this moment in time to give any real-time, real-world examples because animal welfare law is so far the only mm-hmm. law that we have, right? I mean, there are some isolated cases of animal rights emerging from some case law, but that's still a very new and nascent development. But apart from that, animal welfare law is the only law that we have right now. So mm-hmm. it's difficult to give an example that kind of shows how animal welfare law and animal rights law interact. But I can say this, or I can give several examples. So for example, under animal welfare law, the the, the idea of a humane slaughter is perfectly um, reasonable, right? Or that's kind of the, 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 the logic of animal welfare law allows for such a thing as humane slaughter. Whereas mm-hmm. under an animal rights law, that, that would be kind of absurd because the, the, the humane slaughter only protects kind of the secondary interest in being killed in a humane manner, whereas the animal right to life will protect the primary interest in not being killed at all. And so uh, animal rights law would, would provide for much stronger protections of important interests for animals. And then the second example I might give is for example, in Germany, the the widespread practice of killing male chicks in the egg industry because they don't give eggs and they are also deemed useless to raise them for meat because they don't um, grow fast enough. So this practice of killing male chicks um, after they hatched from their eggs has been going on for decades and it has always been deemed or tolerated by the public authorities, by the veterinary offices etc and only a couple of years ago has there been somewhat of a shift in 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 public and legal discourse where it has been where kind of public opinion has kind of shifted towards um deeming this intolerable this practice and there have been some cases some court cases and ultimately the courts decided that this practice can no longer be deemed legal per se because economic reasons cannot outweigh the, the the interests of 50 million chicks a year but nonetheless it has been kind of allowed for the time being until there is a, a, a reasonable alternative to this practice but the, yeah <laughs> this court decision has kind of showed a shift in 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 balancing and the third example i might mention is in these animal rights cases that we see so far most notably in argentina and colombia there, so in Argentina, there has been a case where um, a chimpanzee who was held captive in a zoo was liberated from her confinement via the means of a habeas corpus um, writ. So in this case, the, the, the judge kind of created the animal right to habeas corpus. And by creating this right, also over kind of the, the the applicable applicable animal welfare law was overridden by this animal right. So while under animal welfare law, it it might be legitimate and legal to hold a chimpanzee in confinement in a zoo, the overriding animal right to liberty kind of stated otherwise and 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 mandated that this animal be liberated from that zoo. So mm-hmm. that's maybe a precursor of <clears throat> of what what may come to or how the interplay between animal welfare law and animal rights may may play out in the future. So using your your concept though of of animal warfare law and and I hope I'm not missing missing the point entirely. So using that example, would you have framed so let's say I was doing an analysis of of that example of the chimp being liberated. Would I have framed her confinement as being justified underneath animal warfare law because there's a conceptual shift from welfare to warfare and her subsequent liberation as a move toward animal peace law? 
I think it's it it might be seen as an early indicator of such a shift or or mm-hmm. or an, a yeah a precursor or something. Um, it remains to be seen. I I I I primarily view this case as a as a manifestation of of the emergence of legal animal rights um, through judicial recognition. Um, yeah, I, I think it's too early to tell right now, but. What I might point out is that the the main conceptual um, value of this reframing of of animal welfare law as a wartime regime and animal rights as a peacetime regime is that it allows for animal welfare law and animal rights to coexist in complementarity. So Mm -hmm. this is a significant departure from the current discourse, which is dominated by this welfare rights dualism where wealth, animal welfare law and animal rights are kind of cast as two alternative and mutually exclusive paradigms for the legal protection of animals. So either we we propagate or we 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 um we advocate animal welfare law as the right path or we advocate animal rights as the right path. And I I, I find this dualism to be very unhelpful and also unrealistic. I think the more feasible and plausible way for the law to develop will be one that echoes the development of international humanitarian law and human rights, which also used to be seen as two um, distinct and separate and mutually exclusive legal regimes. So in war, international humanitarian law applies, in peace, human rights apply, and in war, human rights stop to apply. That used to be the the old orthodoxy in, in that area, but that has changed. So today, animal uh, international humanitarian law and human rights are seen as complementary legal regimes. And I think mm-hmm. the same kind of complementarity can be achieved with animal welfare law and animal rights. Um, so in concrete terms, I'm envisioning an, a, a kind of a unitary animal protection law that both in, that incorporates both animal welfare law and animal rights. And they they just they serve they they address different realities and they serve different functions. So animal welfare law is kind of the primary regime governing warlike human animal relations, and animal rights are the primary regime governing governing harmonious and peaceful human animal relations. Okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. I understand. Um, so you could, in effect, even within the same society or, or between societies, have different animal populations that are currently in different relationships with the law. Some of them maybe, uh, you know, imagining this future, some of them more within the rights framework and others more within the welfare framework as these different um, relationships are being negotiated. Uh, that's that's really quite powerful, the move away from from the dichotomy, which which you're right. I mean, it's come up several times in this, the first season of, of The Animal Turn, this kind of tension between welfare versus rights. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, as we near the end of the episode now, uh, there's an opportunity to read an excerpt or a quote that you would like to share. Uh, do, you have, do you have one uh, that you'd like to put forward? Sure, yeah. I can, I can read an excerpt um, that kind of yeah highlights the yeah the the nature of animal war- warfare law mm-hmm. so yeah i i will read it um the so the <laughs> the comparison with the law of war acutely spotlights and puts into proportion the scale and intensity of instrumental violence sanctioned by animal welfare law whereas international humanitarian law is fundamentally based on a distinction between combatants and civilians and designates combatants as the only lawful targets of intentional injuring and killing, a comparable principle of distinction is lacking in animal welfare law. All animals are the lawful targets of instrumental violence. It is worth pausing over this disparity. It signifies that animal welfare law indiscriminately exposes mostly docile, harmed and helpless passive animals to the same quality of violence that international humanitarian law firmly reserves for combatants who are actively engaged in armed hostilities. Put differently, in terms of the heightened level of legally allowed violence, the treatment animal welfare law accords to exploited animals resembles the treatment that international humanitarian law accords to enemy combatants. Essentially and tellingly, the law thus treats animals 
who are more like civilians in terms of their non-involvement in any hostilities, like putative or quasi-combatants. Wow. Is that from, is that from your, your book? Yeah, or my, my article, which is almost <laughs> from... the length of the book. But <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell us the title of the article and where folks could find, find that? Yeah, so the article's title is Beyond Animal Welfare Warfare Law, Humanizing the War on Animals and the Need for Complementary Animal Rights. And I'm about to submit it. So it should hopefully be published within this year. And yeah, um, I, yeah I, we all know how tedious the submission process is. Mm. But yeah, I hope it, that it will be published by the end of this year. Well, I thought that was so powerful in your quote, though, in terms of how you were thinking about, you know, you also thinking about animals as civilians in effect and how you brought forward the fact that they're not combatants, but the same language is used uh, in terms of, um, you know, warfare and, and docile animals that are not actually trying to elicit any sort of harm on us. Yeah. That was a really powerful comparison. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's, 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 it, it, it really encapsulates the, the disproportionateness of how animal welfare law treats animals. Yeah, they're, they're like civilians, but they're treated like combatants. And that kind of shows us how imbalanced and wrong animal welfare law is configured right now. Wow, amazing. Well, um, I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you so much for, for sharing with me so generously. Uh, you, you allowed me the opportunity to see some of your, your work before the interview and um, for, for spending so much time chatting with me today. I've, I've learned a lot. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it a lot. I hope I was able to <laughs> express my theoretical thoughts in an accessible manner. You you were and and I think you 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 gave a whole bunch of new vocabulary and and ways of thinking about animals, um, you know, both within a particular country and also the international. We didn't even really touch on the international dimensions of of all of this as well. Uh, perhaps I'll have you on later and another time to talk more about the international dimensions. Um, if people are interested in your your work, where could they find out more about you and the types of work that you're doing? Um, well, yeah, they should uh, visit my, my homepage uh, at the Max Planck Institute for Comparative Public Law and International Law. Uh, I, I think you're putting a link up with the... With the bio, podcast, yes. Right? Yeah, so yeah, that's the main source of to find my newest publications and to see what kind of work I'm up to right now. Awesome. Well, I, I look forward uh, to your, your article coming out. And when it does, let me know and I'll, I'll share it. <laughs> yeah, great. Thank you. Have a lovely, have a lovely day. Yeah, you too. Bye. Take care. Thank you so much to Saskia for joining me today. Thank you also to Jeremy John for the logo, Gordon Clark for the bed music, and of course a huge thank you to Animals Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple, for sponsoring this podcast. In the next episode, I speak to Frédéric Cotter-Bourdieu, who's definitely going to correct me on how to pronounce his name, about the concept of autonomy and how it relates to animals and the law. I hope you'll join me then. This is The Animal Turn with me, Claudia Hurtenfelder. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com.